Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Today on The Protagonistas, I have an amazing and important conversation with Tiffany Bloom about her recent book, which launches today, titled Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. This book is so good, y'all, and like I said, it's important. Drawing from personal experience, Tiffany explores the dynamics of power and lack of accountability that occur within many organizational contexts. She walks us through a myriad of scenarios in which women have been abused or silenced or sexually assaulted, and she gives us a robust look at cases across history, across races and ethnicities, and even in scripture, encouraging us, both men and women, to speak out in the face of unjust systems. Praytel offers us a holistic vision of how and why we should speak up. Besides the aforementioned, Tiffany wrestles with her Indian American identity, particularly as an adoptee. She wrestles with her spirituality and how she came to be an advocate for women, particularly women of color. I hope this conversation sparks something in you as it did in me, and if you haven't ordered her book yet, you totally should. I look forward to chatting with you next week as we recap this episode, but for now, welcome to The Protagonistas. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me today on The Protagonistas. Um, I am, like I said, here with Tiffany Bloom, um, and she is the author of the recent, or I guess releasing now, um, hey. <laughs> Pray Tell, um, or Pray Tell, oh, why we keep women, or why women stay why we silent. Silence women, why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. Yes, there you go. <laughs> okay, so I have so many questions for you, Tiffany. I loved 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 reading your book like I told you uh, a few seconds ago it was such a it was a heavy read but it you don't get bogged down with the heaviness so you did such a wonderful job in delivering necessary information I felt you dealt with intersections really well um, and theology really well I mean that was you know I'm a theology nerd so those are a lot of the questions that I have for you because that's a lot of the stuff that stood out to me and I love the way that you um, handled scripture in relation to women and why they are silenced, why we are silenced, and yeah, how we can speak up. So I do want to start, however, with asking you um, just about you. I know that you hold multitudes within you. Um, you are a South Asian woman. I know that you, in your book, you talk about your brownness, and I know, um, you know, you talk about living into who you are. So can you talk to me a little bit or talk to us a little bit about that, just who you are? Yeah, so I am Indo-American and I live in the Seattle area. I'm married. I've got two little boys and I grew up in an all white community. Didn't meet another person of color until I was 12 years old. And that was very, um, very impactful on my formative years of understanding where I belonged and where I fit in the world. Um, not only did I grow up in an all white community, it was rural. So I, I was just entrenched in patriarchal narratives, both at home and at school and on the playground and everywhere I was. Um, and I was convinced that the order of the world was white men and then white women and then people of color at the back. And because I was um, not among any other people of color, it, again, it really, it really made me feel invisible. And I attempted to downplay um, you know, most of who I was in order to be accepted by the culture and people I was with. And now because I have my voice and because of my ability to speak fluent white girl, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't hard over time to feel accepted as long as I met the criteria of what people set for me and to sound like them, to act like them, to be interested in what they're interested in. And I didn't find a whole lot of room to, you know, have any dissenting opinions um, of how I was treated. You know, I, I, I joke and pray tell, not joke. I mean, it's a joke to me, but uh, you know, even <laughs> in high school, I was a cheerleader and on the back of my sweatshirt was brown girl because I was the only mm -hmm. one. So in the howls, that's what people called me. And right. I was uncomfortable with it. But at the same time, I was like, I don't want other people to feel uncomfortable that I'm uncomfortable. So just mm -hmm. that um, contorting yourself to fit to a dominant narrative. Um, 
I will say I had this understanding that I was brown, but I wouldn't say that there was a celebration or understanding or identification of being Indian. I was adopted when I was just shy of my second birthday. And anytime I tried to grapple with my first culture, it really wasn't welcome because it also involved sharing about the trauma and the loss of my first culture and my first family. And that was difficult for my adoptive family. Again, this is the eighties where adoption, we don't have all the resources we do now um, in understanding how to process the trauma of an adopted child. So I became um, a person who bottled their feelings of identity, of story, of beginnings, uh, because I was convinced that it wasn't welcome. And I was convinced that I was only acceptable if I fit in. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, that's often heard in the adoptee community, um, just truly trying to please the people around you, including your adopted parents. Um, so it really was, a, really was a beautiful journey. Honestly, once I moved out of my parents' house and, and in my early 20s, um, identifying who I am as an Indian. And, and you know how that happened, Kat, is I moved to London. Wow, <laughs> really? London, yeah. Where 33% of Britons are South yes. Asian. And wow. so I was surrounded by um, people of my first culture and was able to kind of learn firsthand from these British wow. Indians wow. of what that can look like and how to celebrate that. I, I remember I went to my first Indian wedding um, wow being around it, our neighbors, the, the family I lived with at this ministry internship I did uh, were Indian. So it was just a really learning to celebrate and own it mm-hmm. and see the beauty of it in the food, in the cinema, in the music, um, in the holidays, in the colors, in the stories, in the rituals. It, it was just truly like, I've never been more proud. And, and this comes with so much baggage to say this, but I've just never been more proud to be, um, to be Indian. Wow. So what was that change then for you after you moved to London and you began to learn and embrace all of this? And how did your life change after that? Yeah, I was no longer ashamed or fearful of being brown. Because you also have to remember, I grew up, you know, in the 9-11 world and Mm. Indians are often mistaken for, you know, Arabs. And so I was, which also there's, there's no room for... (laughs) discrimination there. And so it went from this, you're this sweet little brown girl who has her parents' white privilege to you are somebody I should fear. Mm. Yeah, I remember I worked in a retirement facility um, right after 9-11 and excuse me, during and right after 9-11. And I was no longer welcome to serve oh the residents because they were so convinced that I would try to poison them. You had a lot of World yeah. War II vets in there. Um, So it was just this understanding of you don't belong here. It became you're that, you know, girl who doesn't fit at school, who's trying to fit into, you know, something I don't, you're Mm -hmm. a part of this. And that I know that's the story of so many, um, so many Indians across America after 9-11 who everything from being bullied at school to to worse. So anyway, I think it was this understanding of not only am I brown and I identify with this brown community, but I'm, I'm truly Indian and there's so much beauty to have with that. So again, growing up in that post 9-11 world, I felt I was the, the shame I felt on the inside was now matched on the outside. Mm-hmm. It was, it was confirmed by my exterior world. And so then, like you said, like I, I mentioned moving to London and, and, and just seeing myself, um, in a culture that is celebrated and welcomed and not attempting to be something they weren't, you know, I think mm-hmm. even in the, uh, a couple of years ago, the, I'm curious about your spiritual background and how, um, yeah, you made sense of all of this as I'm assuming you were raised Christian or maybe not. If you want to talk a little bit about that, what your, what your relationship to God, to spirituality, to your faith was and how that spoke to in and through all of, all of this, all of your identity seeking and your identity, you know, coming into yourself. Right. Yeah. So I, um, my adopted maternal grandfather was a pastor of a little country church. Um, and so I had this legacy of faith in my adopted family, but I would say I really found the goodness of the gospel. When I was in middle school, I I had a pretty rocky upbringing in my, um, in my family. And so 
and not feeling accepted for my trauma and every time wanting to talk about it, feeling rejected or that's, you know, we saved you, like you need to get mm-hmm. over this wow. to then walking into the doors of a church in middle school. And I, I just believed every word that was coming out of their mouth of mm-hmm. the goodness and kindness and faithfulness of Jesus mm-hmm. and everything changed. I was like, if this is true, I will give my whole life to this. Wow. If he welcomes me as I am, game over. He can have everything. I, this is it. This is, this is my whole life. Um, so it gave me a vision for what could be and who I was because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like an Indian in America because when others would come to me, they assumed I had these experiences and knowledge and culture, but I had none. I had no right. grasp. I was wearing my Doc Martens and watching Gilmore Girls with the rest of everyone <laughs> and not having Indian food at home. You know, I was having right, right. helpers. So there was this total lack of understanding a full first culture that other people expected of me when they were Indian. Right. And then they were disappointed if I didn't meet their mm-hmm. expectations of being Indian. Right. So then I, so as, an adult, as an adult, having the opportunity to go to India several times mm. um, and not feeling like an Indian in India. So feeling such imposter syndrome when I'm there. So it was like, man, where's my spot? Can I not have a team? You know, where do I get to be? Where do I get to feel one and know and be accepted for my limited understanding of my culture, but also my desire. And this is truly who I am. It's my DNA. In fact, I remember one time I was, um, I was in India and I was having dinner with some local doctors and toward the end of the conversation, it came to my attention that they thought I was Latin and not Indian. They're like, you don't have the mannerisms, you don't, you don't have the understanding, you don't have the culture, just so you know you're not Indian. And then they laughed. And I laughed with them for fear of shame, mm-hmm. for fear of public humiliation. Mm-hmm. And so my identity was rooted in the understanding of who Jesus is because I wasn't Indian in India and I wasn't Indian in America, yeah. but I was Indian in the kingdom. I right. had this understanding, I am welcome here as I am. So I, it, it truly was just this unveiling of this is to be celebrated, no matter mm. how rocky or complicated or nuanced or complex my story may be. I am one in the kingdom. I am equal in the kingdom and I will act as such. I will walk with that confidence. I will walk with that truth and it's going to change everything. So uh, my understanding of who Jesus is has been one of empowerment and one of celebration and one of goodness. And, and I'm very passionate about women's equality, especially for women of color. That's very much my niche. Um, and that's evident as you read through the pages of Pray Tell. Uh, and, and, and truly, it's because of what Jesus has done in my understanding of, mm. of the women in both the Old and the New Testament. And it just truly, like, I'm like, no, I'll, I'm going to die on this hill. This is, mm. this is everything. So, um, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. Amen. Um, and I, I, I love that you... And that's, I mean, I, I sort of deal with this also in, in Awalita Faith of this idea of like that our realities are so complex and so complicated and dominant culture doesn't like that. Dominant culture wants us to be one dimensional people and not have complex stories because it's harder to deal with. Um, and I see it, you know, as I, as I read scripture and as I read the stories of women in scripture, I see just how stinking complicated their realities are. You know, they lie and they cheat and they steal and they sleep with men and they pretend to be prostitutes and they seduce others to ensure their own survival. So there really is no clear, um, you know, black and white, or there really is no clear way of existing in the world um, that doesn't involve just being complex and being complicated. And exactly like you said, God meets them there and they are blessed by God. You know, they are agents of freedom, liberation of whatever you want to call it. And I just love that your story, like just, you know, uh, you know, not that you cheat or or lie or steal, but your story (laughs) kind of encapsulates this idea that, you know, in God's kingdom, we are fully our complex and complicated and beautiful selves. And that's okay and perfect and beautiful, (laughs) you know, um, the, the, the problem isn't that you weren't welcome in Indian, you know, like that that's not the issue. The issue is that the dominant culture made you feel that way. Right. Right. Um, The complexity of who you are, I think is just, is, is reality. And so anyway, thank you for sharing all that. That was so beautiful. Um, so this is, I know that you touched on this already. Um, 
that you are passionate about women and then you and, and these things. But so what was it? I'm curious about the journey of you writing this book. Like what, w- what were some key moments that you were like, no, I need to sit down and I need to write this. I need to talk about this. I need to put it in paper. Um, yeah. What made you write this book? Yeah. This book was birthed out of my own traumatic experience of speaking truth to power. Many years ago, I found myself in an impossible situation where to do the right thing was to do the hard thing. And it was to speak up on behalf of um, coworkers and sisters that I deeply cared for. And there was a lot on the line to lose. And so I, you know, this, this book is written not from the point of view of a victim who's been silenced and slandered, but as somebody who realizes that we all find ourselves in these ethical dilemmas, some of them big, some of them small, but ethical dilemmas nonetheless, where we ask ourselves, should I speak up because, or is this not any of my business? Or would I just be a gossip if I got myself involved? Mm -hmm. Not my circus, not my monkeys. We play all of these questions in our mind and we ask ourselves, is it my responsibility to speak up for others when they could be subjugated, silenced, slandered, and harmed? knowing that if I do, I might receive the same consequence or punishment intended for a woman who was victimized and did nothing to deserve that. So as I did speak truth to power and I was not believed, I really began to examine the societal, professional, spiritual, financial Mm -hmm. ramifications of doing so and how we as a culture continue to silence women in a myriad of ways And we truly are stifling in sacred and secular culture, women across the board, women in business, women in education, women who are up and out, women who are down and out, women in the church. And it's detrimental. It's, it serves no one, men or women, and especially the next generation. So it really came out of, again, personal experience. And in fact, Kat, it was intended to just be an op-ed at the beginning of chapter three, where I talk about, you know, waking up and having night terrors of what I knew in this I had secrets just swimming in my veins. And should I tell somebody, what should I do? What would this person do to me? I was more fearful of what would happen to me than what would happen to him if I spoke up. Mm. And uh, constantly waking up in the middle of the night, I had I would wake up just vomiting and sick to my mm. stomach and not, not able to sleep. And I had no escape in the day or the night because I knew that the information I had was would affect thousands of people. Mm. And um, and when I finally did have the bravery to speak up, everything I thought that would happen did happen, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't negate the need to still speak up. Right. Amen. So good. So a big chunk of this book is about sexual assault. Um, You know, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein and you mentioned, um, you know, R. Kelly, and you just mentioned a lot of these, um, you know, stories that have been, I mean, they're not new, but they, they, they've been recently in the news. Um, and you also talk about, and so, like I said, you, you do such a wonderful job of um, creating like these moral analogies with scripture. Uh, and so with that, I'm curious to hear you talk about David. Um, I love that you point out the fact that he faces consequences for his actions. Um, this is actually something that I don't think is talked about enough. I feel like just recently people started admitting that he like, you know, is an adulterer or not an adulterer, but he committed sexual assault, right? Like yeah. that's not something that a lot of people, um, I feel like I'm, and thanks in part, I think to me too, and like, you know, church too, and all these things that people are like calling this out. Um, but I love that you mentioned that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the consequences that David faces and how, um, yeah, how that speaks to our culture now? And you also later in the book, after you mentioned David, you also talk about Nathan and you say like, we need more Nathans um, because Nathan called him out essentially. Mm-hmm. So can you elaborate on this sort of like this story as a whole, um, David facing consequences and Nathan as being a sort of ally? Yeah, Absolutely. So it's interesting because, you know, from the time we're in Sunday school, we are presented the sanitized story of David and Bathsheba and that somehow she was um, sensual or alluring or a hussy sitting there just waiting to be seen and nothing could be further from the truth. She was at that time of the month and cleansing herself in uh, the place that she normally would. And in a voyeuristic fashion, David saw her, decided, I will conquer and steal from this woman. I will steal Mm -hmm. from her something that is not mine to take. And Mm -hmm. again, I talk about sexual assault really in the grander understanding of an imbalance of power and how men um, abuse that power by subjugating women's bodies. And so we see David do just that. And we see him beckon her and call her. She had no 
uh, choice in this matter. She was considered property. And so, you know, his, his, his men go and fetch her and she's brought in. I, can you even imagine thinking what's going through her mind? Like what's happening? Why am I going before the King? And it was for ill intent. It was for ill purposes. So here she is everything taken from her and, and forced to bed this man. And, and then, you know, he, then she shares of where her husband is. And, and, and so he plans an assassination on her husband to protect his sin and to protect, you know, this pregnancy after he tries to get him to better. I mean, it's just this dark, twisted story. Yet we are shared this narrative of, look how David apologized and look right. how this is a man after God's own heart. But we would be silly to overlook that the ancient of days does not let bygones be bygones. He had consequences. <laughs> and for some reason or another, that is not included in the story when we're told about David and Bathsheba. We love to tie it up in a bow and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, his own son wanted to take his throne. He lost so much of his kingdom. Um, he, you know, his own daughter would go on to be sexually assaulted by his son. This man paid consequences time and time and time again for the sin that began in his heart. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it, we, this, this free pass that we say, you know, to politicians or presidents or uh, celebrities that, oh, he's a man after God's own heart. Oh, he's got a good agenda right. that's for the benefit of constituents everywhere. We we love to give a free pass and we use David to prop up that narrative in our modern day. And it's, it's damaging. It's unscriptural right. and really is not the full picture. So then you jump to seeing Nathan brought in and I call Nathan, Nathan, a whistleblower. He walked in and he said, this is what you've done. And if you must repent, you have yeah. to change your ways. There was no, um, there was no uh, peddling or, or pandering to David, like, hey, man, you did this, but you just got to go out there yeah. and give a speech and do the right thing. You need, right. you know, they're probably going to give you a standing ovation. You're probably going to get a free pass. Everybody still loves you. It was none of that. It was sharp language. Nathan mm -hmm. offers sharp language in his rebuke to lament his sin and, and face his consequences. And so Nathan is this male ally to Bathsheba. We, we don't often connect those two right. in the same story. We think, you know, David did this to Bathsheba and then along comes Nathan. But you have to see that Nathan stood up for Bathsheba. He stood up for the kingdom. He stood up against, he spoke truth to power and was willing to face the consequences. Nathan had no idea what David was going to do. Right. David could have had him killed, but he did the right thing, the holy thing. And, 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 and we, again, David repented. He mm. fully repented of his sin. Mm. Yes. Amen. That's so good. I love how you connect those things together because yeah, it's true. I don't think that we, we don't see it as a whole narrative, right? We don't see all how all the pieces come together. Um, and I think, yeah. sorry, go ahead. We cherry pick. We oh, cherry right. Pick right. Story. Exactly. And talking about repentance, I love that you, um, you know, you focus obviously on this idea of like shallow or, or I guess the way that women are expected to forgive right and it's this shallow this harmful idea of forgiveness um and I, I think about this a lot because it's like yeah people in power can get away with whatever they want and it's up to those who are abused to just forgive you know you have to forgive um and of course the bible talks about forgiveness right so it can become a complicated thing because um you know we are we should forgive for our health for our own selves but you know, it's not that simple. And you, and I love how you, um, you, you kind of wrestle with this. And with that, you talk about, um, we prematurely invite women to forgive men who abuse their power in the absence of repentance, Kat. It is yes. pervasive problem. I have to tell you in my own situation where I was this girl, I played by all the rules in church. I lettered in youth group. I, I did everything the evangelical church told me to do. I, I, I have given my life to, to following Jesus and I, and I served in a church. I was just shocked at the grooming and dare I say brainwashing of women told your only option here. If you want to maintain spiritual maturity is to forgive. Yeah. You must forgive or this is on you. Right. You are at fault. This now, this attention will be turned to you if you do not do A, B, and C. 
again, in the absence of repentance, true repentance and reparations, no reparations, no, no, no restitution made for, for sin committed against this woman. And so in my situation, I remember sitting uh, in a church service and feeling so guilty that mm -hmm. I did not want reconciliation with this mm -hmm. abuser of power because I was so convinced that reconciliation above all, there was right. no qualifiers, if you will, right. for reconciliation. And I felt so guilty for not, listen, I can't believe this. I felt so guilty for not putting myself in harm's way again because we are so mm -hmm. taught, you just got to forgive and we're going to be friends for a long time. In fact, I got a call from this person who I spoke up to and he said, you know, we're going to be friends for a long time. So we've got to be able to move past this. And he said it in that tone of voice, by the way. Um, and I remember thinking, oh yeah, what have I done? What have I done? Right. So again, moving it to like, no, we're going to be in relationship. And this is often what happens to abusers of power. They want to maintain a relationship even after they've abused power to ensure control, right. manipulative control. And yeah. here I was allowing it to happen because I wanted to play by the rules because I believe that I just got to forgive them and let this go. This is on me if I don't. Instead of healthy boundaries, reconciliation is rewarded to those who repent mm -hmm. and show true, uh, true limitation. And that was, that was not present. So I just think we yeah. must be weary of encouraging women to forgive in the absence of repentance. Yes. Amen. So good. I just want to take a quick second to remind you of the awesome opportunity you have to become a patron. Doing so will keep allowing me to produce quality content and support Chasing Justice, which is a person of color-led organization. With your partnership, you'll get exclusive content not available on social media, academic works, resources, including book lists, videos, updates, and a chance to connect with me personally so we can engage in communal learning and theologizing juntos together. Just head on over to my website for the link or to sign up to receive my newsletter. Now, back to the interview. I love what you say about the misuse of Matthew 18. Um, and you contra or you speak that, or you, I guess, put that in contrast to uh, 1 Timothy 5. Um, and I hadn't heard this before. I thought that that was really good. I, I really love like your distinction between the two, between, um, I know that, uh, Matthew 18 is like sort of this, you know, I remember always hearing it um, in certain contexts about like, well, you have to go to the person first and, you know, um, right. but how do you, or can you speak a little bit to um, how that's different than first Timothy five and how we're supposed to sort of like handle both of those verses? Yeah, absolutely. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So we're invited to go in horizontal relationship, in horizontal connection to a brother or sister in private to bring up a matter. Now, here's what happens. That line between faith leader and friend can get blurry. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the, the Matthew 18 card is played by faith leaders who say, no, you're my brother or sister in the Lord. You should just come to me and we can handle this privately. Mm -hmm. But any, any HR or PR or anybody <laughs> would be able to say, well, that's a great start of a cover up or that's truly can be a manipulative pattern to be able to stop the story, stop the narrative, stop this person who's speaking truth to power or bringing sensitive matters to attention to those in headship charged with handling misconduct. Right. So it really can get really murky. And I found myself in a situation where a cat, I was, shamed for not going to my superior Matthew 18 style, as they said. Mm -hmm. And so I was reeling from the shame of handling it wrong. And again, the tactics that we play against people who are speaking truth to power um, is so mis misguided and misled. Right. And again, so unscriptural. First Timothy 5, 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sending you are two Reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality mm. and to do nothing out of favoritism. So it was, um, it was men 
enabling an abuser of power who men and women who deliver this message of you need to do this Matthew 18, you need to do this in private versus first Timothy five nineteen that invites you to come with evidence and two or three witnesses. Note cat. It doesn't say two or three victims. Mm. We're not waiting for others to be victimized, which is often wow. what happens in these situations. Right. We want the tally marks of victims, not witnesses. But when wow. we come with witnesses, we are to be heard. And there is an order that we are to go to elders with this information and they can talk to the superior. They can talk to the abuser of power and that faith leader the, yeah. to ask a parishioner to come and Matthew 18 it with their faith leader. That is an imbalance of power. That is vertical yeah. leadership. And Paul clearly addresses that here. So I think this, um, this confusion and this muddying of the two can do a lot of damage yep. and really, really set in motion uh, manipulation and spiritual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that just goes back to the idea of cherry, cherry picking and, you know, right. something that um, just c- keeps those power, those imbalances of power. Um, and so, yeah. So thank you so much for pointing that out. I think that that's so helpful for um, for what we're talking about here. So, and with that, can you speak to um, this idea of the halo effect uh, for, for those who may have not heard of it? I, I think that that speaks so explicitly um, to situations in the church. Um, so if you want to talk a little bit about what that is, is and and yeah what we can do about it yeah so the halo effect we we are so impressed by first impressions <laughs> could have found a different verb but i chose to use it <laughs> it is nearly impossible to change first impressions research support this that when we believe somebody is good or kind or benevolent or generous it is really difficult to change that belief and narcissists are masters at first impression they are counting on you to believe who they are the first time knowing that they can rig the system and convince you of their charity and their kindness and their quote-unquote inherent goodness but in reality we award them this halo and we give them a free pass and so Let's say a woman comes and says, hey, this man abused his power. He took advantage of me and I, 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 I need to tell you. But because we've given this halo effect, we've given this belief that he is good, that he could never do that. He could never do mm-hmm. that person harm. We're willing to ascribe goodness to him and, and a negativity to any man or woman speaking up against this person. Right. Uh, again, because of those powerful first impressions right. and we will continue to use confirmation bias to we will mine our own brain looking for reasons to support that narrative that we have already got going on loop in our brain that this is a good person you know you see this uh, in the case of Brett Kavanaugh so many women from his high school you know 40 for you know 35 40 years previous who went to high school with him many women wrote a letter to the the hearing committee saying that we know he's a good guy. We believe he's a good guy. Right. So you're telling me that each and every one of those women has tracked his career since <laughs> he was 17, every single woman on that list. Now, I'm not saying we don't defend good men. Don't hear me. Right. And I think that I know that that's the pushback I'm going to get from this book <laughs> is we don't believe in good men. No, nothing could be further from the truth. But when there is information and we continually allow um, an abuser of power, in this case, you know, in context, we're talking about a man to maintain that power despite any accusations and we continually we pit a a man's accolades against a woman's accusations right rather than being able to say here's what he did i'm coming with these claims and his his defense is but look at who i am and look at what Mm -hmm. i've done for people right that is apples to oranges (laughs) but we continually allow men to defend themselves in such a manner and get away with it Right. Yeah. Like, oh, well, he's such a good pastor. Oh, he helps these people out or he does this good thing. Um, That doesn't mean that he doesn't also do this horrific thing. You know, Um, they don't necessarily have to be. um, Yeah. Like you said, they're apples. Right. Right. People um, like we talked about are complex human beings and you can do really good things and also do really bad things. Um, So I thought that was really helpful. Thank you. You know what? I just have to say, I think this is why we love Shonda Rhimes, right? Mm -hmm. All of her shows, you see 
altruistic personalities, you see deviant personalities in the same character mm, versus this person yeah. is clearly the goody. This one's clearly the baddie. Let's carry on and tell the story. We are mm. allowing people to be people in real life who are capable of good, who are capable of bad. Yes, exactly. So good. Okay. So I want you to talk a little bit about intersectionality. I mentioned that, um, you know, you talk about this a lot in your book and you talked about how you, um, or throughout this interview that you're passionate about women of color. And so I'm interested how black indigenous and other women of color, uh, or minority women in general are uniquely affected by these injustices. I think a good example that you mentioned is the difference between the response to Weinstein versus the response to R. Kelly. Um, So talk to me about that, you know, some of your research and perhaps other examples. Like I know you mentioned the term massage noir. Um, Yeah, if you want to elaborate on that. Absolutely. So unfortunately, when we have this conversation about abuse of power at a woman's expense, those shaping the narrative are often resourced, celebrities, (laughs) white women, And those are the ones we listen to. Those are the ones we praise at the city gates. You know, we think of Ashley Judd or we think of Gwyneth Paltrow or we think of some of these women, you know, uh, all all these women and she said or um, Mm -hmm. every conspiracy that's come out about Harvey Weinstein, we are willing to praise them, but we are not willing to, uh, to even turn our eyes towards the thousands of McDonald's workers who are black and brown who are being coerced into the bathroom on their 10 minute break by their manager and forced to commit sex acts, or they're going to lose their job and not be able to feed their children. We're not willing to look at black women in the workplace who are three times more likely to be sexually harassed and assaulted by their peers and by their superiors whether it be in a low wage earning job or corporate America. We're not willing to look at the, Indigenous women who are two and a half times more likely than any other people group to be harassed or assaulted. We're not looking at undocumented women Mm -hmm. who are fearing for their immigration status, who are fearing for their children or fearing deportation and are forced at the hands of their managers in agriculture to commit these sex acts. It is wild that we are only willing to listen to resourced white women on this issue. You know, Tarana Burke, founder of the Me Too movement, she talks about, you know, imbalance of power, abuse of power to women's expense is across the board. It's happening to every woman, but our response is not balanced. Mm -hmm. Our response is outrageously ordered of white women getting legal protection and legal rights and women at the bottom, not so much. So we see this again, you mentioned R. Kelly and Harvey Weinstein. And as I studied this case, um, it just blew my mind that there were seven, they, you know, uh, journalists who followed R. Kelly's story for over 20 years, they claimed that over a thousand people witnessed his harem of young girls under, they're not women, they were girls, they were under 18. And they knew of his exploitation. They knew that these parents were trying to get their daughters back. They knew of his tactics. We're talking about everyone from working in craft services at an hourly wage on his music videos, all the way up to music executives. And yet he's cleared of all wrongdoing. He releases an 18 minute song called I Admit on every streaming service in the world. He is a cultural icon for a generation, generations, right? Multiple generations still sing his song, his songs. Yet when we see Weinstein's, um, you know, breaking news story in the New York Times, we are, and then again in the New Yorker, we are seeing immediate action. He's removed mm. from the film um, industry. He's, you know, his titles are recalled, his assets are freezed. He's taking all these accusations, all, you know, court cases are starting to pile up in New York State and other states. And until, until Lifetime, Lifetime Original, creates a docu-series on R. Kelly, 26 million people watched it. Only then, only then mm. were his survivors heard. But, but the treatment of his survivors were, how dare you speak up against one of our own? How dare you, um, you're just girls. How dare you think you can mm. speak up against a grown man? They were not giving the collective care or concern by the media, by the justice system, uh, by the, by the, population at large, that same care and concern, nor the celebration or heroic status that we gave white women. Right. right. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you, do you want to speak a little bit um, about the term misogynoir that you mentioned uh, in relation to black women? Yeah. So misogynoir, um, I believe is coined by Moya Bailey. 
And she is um, truly an expert in this. And it's this unique discrimination faced exclusively by black women. So the misogynistic tendencies that we all know and that we see in our everyday life, in church and work, it's everywhere. It's, it's uniquely targeted against black women. So at the intersection of their blackness and their womanhood, and there are stereotypes attached to that, that they are, um, are exotic, that they're more sexually active, that they're more mm-hmm. sexually deviant, that they quote unquote want it, that they, um, that they deserve it. And you mm-hmm. see this from the time uh, I feature in um, toward the end of the book, I talk about this court case that dates back to the late 1800s. And this former slave girl is speaking up um, against her, her former slave master who took advantage of her body in front of her younger siblings in a barn. And the, the judge sitting presiding over this case says to her, unless that you can prove that you didn't enjoy it, mm-hmm. she didn't rape you. And so you see this happening to this young mm-hmm. black woman and now you think about modern day, how black women are treated, especially in the Me Too movement. I, you can hardly think of black women who've been the forefront of this movement. And Terry Crews does not count, does not count. He's a black man that we love and respect, but that's not, but, but it proves my point. Right. Um, we have silenced, we do not even deem their stories worthy of news, mm-hmm. worthy of news because it is so prevalent. Yeah, well, um, and so I want to talk a little bit more. I want to go back to like some theological things that you mentioned. Um, so I want to ask you two last questions about this. Um, one, how did Jesus give women a voice? I want to hear um, just your theological musings about that. Of course, you know, everyone has their own theological musings, but in relation to this, um, to relation to your topic in relation to your book, what are some of the things that you found that speak to, um, yeah, the things that you're talking about in your book? Oh, if there wasn't a more perfect question, what an honor to get to talk about this. I am um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a Bible study about Jesus encounter with women in the gospels and it mm-hmm. changed my life cat. I was already a raging lover of women in power <laughs> and believing that women had a place and a voice, but to see how God with skin on treated women, I was never the same. I was never mm-hmm. the same after digging oh, into yeah. those commentaries and understanding the unique way. And the, I, I, so I just want to, I want to make the most of my time to answer this. So <laughs> I want to speak fast and speak um, with intention, but I first want to talk about the adulterous woman. When mm-hmm. I see Jesus place himself between those who wanted to stone her and her, that is empowerment. He put himself, his physical body, mm-hmm. the bystander intervention, we would call that, right? So he put himself between them and her and ensured her physical safety. He did not ask, did you deserve it? Were you a part of it? What were you wearing? None of those questions that we ask women in sacred and secular culture, none of it. He put his physical, fully human and fully God body between them to protect her, to, to speak to those who would do ill will her way. Right. And then go and tells her to go and sin no more. He didn't, he didn't speak to the specifics. I love that. He just said, go and sin no more. The same thing he would tell you or I go and sin no more. Just the, he waited till they were alone. He didn't publicly shame her. He didn't say that in front of anybody else. Just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. The honor there, the empowerment that is in that story. And I just, it's often reduced to this story of where, Oh, Jesus, you know, wrote in the sand and they were yeah. just looking to trap him. Let us not overlook the empowerment of that woman. Right. And then I, you know, it's hard not to just go straight to Mary Magdalene of just this woman, you know, the entire message of the resurrection is, uh, is this mantle, this word is on a woman's shoulders. He could have told the boys they were there. She brought right. them. He waited till they left. He chose her in the first century when women held no weight in a court of law. In fact, uh, you know, I quote in the first century um, uh, document how women were accused of personal gain or fear of punishment. They would not speak because it was assumed that they had motive. So they had no weight. And yet Jesus is like, I know the law of the day. Mm -hmm. I know how women are treated. And I have come to turn this on ahead, this upside down kingdom. Just beautiful, beautiful to so see good. the full empowerment. And, and even in our modern day, we aren't even seeing 
the counterculture narrative that even Jesus displayed in the first century. We have so right. to even match and mirror what he did in the full empowerment that he did. We have been willing to let that Greco-Roman influence and, in, you know, just just pervade church culture and uh, uh, church teaching to where women are subservient and second and to be quiet. And it is, that is, that is abuse. That is abuse yeah. of the scriptures. That is a, 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 a spiritual abuse. So yeah, as you can see. Yeah. I always say that passionate about, yeah. <laughs> about truly living out the gospel witness and gospel call of a woman's mm-hmm. place. Yeah, I always say that we elevate a few of Paul's words over the entire life of Jesus in mm. order to silence mm. women. Mm. Mm. <laughs> There's a couple little For verses those in that the back. Yes, <laughs> household codes that we use to subjugate right. use a couple verses of Paul over the words of Jesus. Yep. Never over the entire Yeah, I'm gonna take that to the bank and that will cash. That is a good check. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true over the entire like life actions, everything, <laughs> you know, words of Jesus, we elevate a couple of Paul's, you know, and again, when, when I say we, I say those in power, those in power who have been in power, who want to continue yeah. being in power, um, yep. are able to do that because they've been in power. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, there's much like for us. them to lose. There's right. much for them to lose. They truly believe their livelihood and place in the system is threatened. Mm-hmm. And in reality, yep. the world will, will flourish when women are in power. The GDP right. will increase. Safer cities are designed. Uh, CEOs aren't as trigger happy to make decisions for the company. They aren't as quick to make decisions when women are on the board. We are, we are seeing time and time again across the globe in every sector of society and in every culture, the developed world, the developing world, um, war-torn spaces, that when women are in power, things happen for the good. Yeah. Amen. Okay, my last question. Um, so I actually talk a little bit about this in my book as well. Um, and I, I do mention the the woman accused of adultery as well. And and something that in my research that I, I had found was, it's, uh, I think it's a scholar, she's Gail O'Day. And she had mentioned that the way that Jesus interacts with those accusing this woman, um, it's sort of like, it's pointing to him pointing out, or it's, it's, you know, the, the passages is looking to him pointing out the flaws in the system. Right. So he's sort of like, do you, you know, like what, you know, what sins have you committed? Or or I forgot exactly what words, uh, what he says in the passage, but he's literally turning it around on its head, turning the fault or the focus away from her and her perceived sins, but to the system that is, you know, um, causing her or is is pointing the finger is putting the blame on her. And so I love that, that it's an entire undoing of an entire system. You know what I mean? Like it's a systemic problem. Um, So anyway, I love that passage. I'm so glad that you brought it up and, and sort of with that, with the idea of, um, you know, sexual sin and, and the burden of lust. Um, I've often heard of Matthew 20 or excuse me, Matthew 18. And if your eye causes you to stumble, um, you know, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. I've always heard, and not always, I've more recently heard that passage, um, speak to this idea that, um, you know, women aren't to bear the burden of lust, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you have to cover up. I know you mentioned this in your book, you know, that you have to cover up and, you know, make sure that the boys don't stumble when Jesus clearly says, hey, if you're stumbling, gouge out your eye. He doesn't say, hey, if you're stumbling, women put on a shirt, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I love that you also use Mark 7 to affirm this point. And that's something that I hadn't um, heard too much. So I really love that you did that. Um, can you elaborate on this? And, and I can pull up Mark 7 if you need me too. Yes, please do that. Yes, please pull up <laughs> Mark seven. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this idea that women are the cause of evil in the world is so embedded in our culture that we continually blame women. And of course, I would hope that women are seeking holiness and goodness. So I'm not giving women a free pass. I'm not. But we continually believe and, uh, and our laws uphold this belief, our, our church bylaws uphold this belief, our purity culture upholds this belief that men are not able to control themselves. Men mm-hmm. are not responsible for their actions, mm-hmm. that they should be given a free pass based on exterior circumstances. Right. And, and a woman dressing a certain way, acting a certain way, warrants their behavior, their poor behavior. So it really is, again, unbiblical. And Jesus 
as a man thinketh, so he is. We are each, there's so much personal responsibility that is ignored in our systems, just like you said, that uphold this narrative that subjugates women. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I'll, I'll go ahead and read Matthew seven. Cause I mean, it speaks to what you're saying, but he says, or Jesus says in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come sexual immorality. And then he names theft and murder and adultery and greed and all these things. And he says, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. I love how you, um, and, and it clearly says sexual immorality there, but um, a lot of people don't connect those dots, you know, right. that we, right. yeah, place the burden on, oh, well, these evil thoughts, these lustful desires come from this woman who's out there when Jesus is saying, no, <laughs> sorry, they come from within. Um, so yeah, I just love how you connected that. I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to say to that. Yeah, again, we... We claim individual power and responsibility and agency when it's advantageous. Mm -hmm. And we denounce that same agency when there's consequences on the line for us. Right. Yeah. Amen. So good. Thank you so much for writing this book, Tiffany. I really enjoyed it and I know others will. Um, Yeah. It's so well-researched. It's so well-written and it's so empowering. So yeah. Thank you. So if you want to let folks know um, maybe some information about it, where they can find it, um, where they can follow you and anything else you might want to share. Yeah, absolutely. Everything at Tiffany Bloom at B-L-U-H-M.com. All the links to your favorite indie and main, you know, big box retailers, as well as if you order, you have, you unlock access to a pray tell virtual summit with leading voices, psychologists, scholar, you, theologian, activists, <laughs> cultural commentators around this issue. So it's really um, such a fun treat to bring other leading voices to the table on this issue. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support. And if you want to hang out on the everyday, I'm often on Instagram at Tiffany Bloom. Thank you so much for listening to the protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.